Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, General Electric continues to focus on reducing its debt-heavy balance sheet, today announcing that the company is going to freeze pension benefits for more than 20,000 U.S. employees. To get a sense of what this means for the company and for its balance sheet, we welcome Joel Levington, Senior Credit Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Joel joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Joel, thanks so much for joining us. So, freezing pension benefits for 20,000 employees, how is that going to help the balance sheet? Sure. Well, the rating agencies usually look at adjusted leverage, which includes underfunded pension liabilities. GE has the largest underfunded pension plan in the S&P 500, and it was going to go up uh, about $7 billion this year. So the action that they're taking uh, will alleviate that, uh, the incremental uh, addition that they were going to have this year. So it says uh, in a story looking at this issue that GE could potentially reduce the pension shortfall by as much as $8 billion. I'm just trying to understand whether this was basically expected or whether this is a surprise. I view it as a surprise and a pleasant surprise. If I look at a bigger picture for GE in terms of their debt, they need to reduce their debt liabilities by about 25 to $30 billion this year to hit their leverage target. Uh, they have about $38 billion worth of asset sales happening this year. So this is the first slug to help attack the liabilities that they need to reduce. So GE's CEO, Larry Culp, I think he's been in the job you know, a little more than a year or so. What's the, the reading after a year on his tenure? Because I know one of the big issues he said was, I'm going to get the balance sheet under control. Is he, is he doing a good job, do you think? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Paul. And you know, I was on a, a year ago, a little over a year ago, on the on the TV saying that I think he's the best person for the spot, and I still do. A year later, he is addressing the issues, and there's two main issues. One is really attacking the liability structure, which is happening through the asset sales that they've announced. Uh, the second is really uh, cost cutting and restructuring the power business and making that a business which had generated over seven billion dollars of operating profit in 2015 is now losing money. Uh, you know, four years. Uh, years later. So really making it less worse will be the other uh, driver of, of getting their credit back together. So if this is a positive surprise, why are the shares down? Well, because for a shareholder, you're seeing capital go towards uh, a risk management event. It's not a share buyback. It's not uh, an acquisition. It's not improving the business, but it is reducing risk. So you have seen the bonds tighten uh, on the news, although the stock is off. So uh, basically, just to give you a sense of what the issue here uh, for the stock is, it's the pre-funding also of the pensions as part of this deal, right? I mean, they're putting some money aside uh, in addition to ceasing some of the payments, right? Oh, you're totally right, Lisa. And I think our equity analyst, uh, Karen Oldbohart, will tell you that the, the, the multi-industrials, they are looked at in terms of free cash flow. And so for this, there's no positive or negative free cash flow implica implications for this year. But as we think about next year and GE's hope that it'll be free cash flow positive, uh, this will help alleviate that issue because they won't have additional pension uh, funding to, to pursue. All right. So from the credit perspective, this is good news. Uh, the CEO's doing a good job in terms of dealing with the pension, cutting costs. At some point, though, this company really has to get back on a, a growth track. Is that something the that whole you making have? money thing? Yes, that whole making money thing. <laughs> is there what is your outlook as to kind of the core operating businesses here? Do they have the capital structure that can support that? the growth and the turnaround of those businesses? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And 
underneath their businesses, they have two real franchises, with, which is aerospace and healthcare. What you really have a problem with is your power and renewables businesses. Those are struggling. Those will continue to struggle, uh, one, because the fundamentals are so weak. But what they can do is really reshape the cost structure there, where they were built for almost a 50% bigger market than what they have today. And so that's why I say it'll be less worse, but I think it's going to be a very gradual, multi-year process before they make money in the power business. So how much more upside is there in the GE bonds? I know you can't make a call, but make a call. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like theoretically, given the fact that they're taking more aggressive steps earlier in the process, is that currently being baked into the bond prices? Well, I I think what the opportunity set is something like this. Their their bonds are rated in the triple B tier. If I look at a mid triple B uh, industrial, they trade about 60 basis points wider, the GE bonds. So if they could get, if they could right size themselves, there's at least 60 points of upside should uh, you know, like, should they get their profile to look more akin to what a triple B should look like? I don't think that will happen until maybe 2021 or 2022 at the earliest. So our, our asset sales, are we kind of, have you seen all that you need to see or do we still have some more news coming in terms of asset sales? Well, Paul, I think there's still more potential opportunities in here. And in particular, I think it's very interesting that they set up a healthcare analyst day in December. Uh, if you recall, uh, about a year ago, they were looking to IPO that business. And our analysis tells us that if they did an IPO akin to what uh, Siemens did, their peer, uh, with their healthcare, excuse me, with their healthcare business, that would be worth somewhere between 10 and $12 billion uh, for GE, which would be another lever uh, to attack their liabilities. Joel Levington, thank you so much for being here. General Electric is such an interesting story and frankly has been a boon over the past few months for the bond investors and anyone who got in early. So uh, definitely an interesting place to continue to watch. Joel Levington, Senior Credit Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Well, the economic data we've seen recently is sending, uh, I think, financial markets mixed messages at best. Are we heading to a recession? Uh, If so, when? If not, is it just lower growth for longer? And what does that mean for financial markets? Our next guest can help us kind of dig through that. Hugh Johnson is chairman and chief investment officer of Hugh Johnson Advisors based in Albany, New York. Hugh, thanks so much for joining us. I know investors really over the last week or so have had a lot of data to digest, uh, whether it's manufacturing, ISM data, uh, consumer confidence, uh, jobs. What is your view of kind of the current economic outlook and, and what that means for financial markets? It's a great question. And the, pro- the problem is, is we don't have any easy answers. And you see that the, the markets have become extremely uh, news sensitive, shall we say. So we had very sharp declines, Paul, in, in, as a result of the ISM manufacturing report suggesting that the manufacturing sector of the economy is contracting and protect, perhaps con- contracting quite a bit, as well as the services sector, which looked like the manufacturing sector was beginning to, let's say, contaminate the services sector at the same time. Uh, one or two days later, we get an employment report, which in my judgment was very encouraging, and the markets reflected that by going up. So uh, the markets have become extremely uh, news sensitive. If you were to ask me um, whether it's going to be a recession or hard landing, or whether it's going to be a soft landing when we get to 2020, I'd say, first of all, it's important to recognize it's a very close call. 
Um, we can make a good case for a hard landing. We can make a really good case, I think, for a soft landing. And if I were to make a, a guess, and that's probably all it could be, I'd say it's going to be a soft landing. Or the economy is going to continue to expand through 2020, but at a very, very slow pace, a slower pace than 2019. Hugh, when I, when I talk to investors not on radio, they often tell me, here's our thinking, things will be fine. Heading into the 2020 elections, President Trump will try to make the economy look really good. If Elizabeth Warren wins, if she wins the Democratic nomination and then she wins the presidency, all bets are off. The market's going to tank. This morning, RBC coming out with a, a research note saying maybe it's not so bad. Are you even looking at this at, that, at this point? I'm not looking at it every day on a sort of a hard, hard basis, but it's certainly in the back of my mind, and it's certainly, I think, with every old strategist, economist are thinking about it. What's it going to represent or mean if Elizabeth Warren, who now looks like she's heading into the, a little bit into the lead, and what's it going to mean, especially because there's a, the concern about the shift to the left, concern about, obviously, more regulation, concern about higher taxes, What's that going to mean for the markets, the economy in the markets? I think the common sense approach might be that it's probably not going to be very good news when we have that shift to the left uh, for the economy and the markets. But believe me, there's a case that could be made that it might be very good for the, the market. So it's, a, it's one that I don't focus on on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's certainly in the back of my mind. And as we get closer to 2000, uh, the election in 2020, we're going to be thinking a lot about it. Uh, right now, it's not the number one issue. Well, I'm guessing, Hugh, one of the uh, issues that is top of mind for you is uh, the Federal Reserve and to what extent the Fed can help uh, you know, support this economy, which appears to be slowing. So what do you expect from the Fed and how effective do you think the Fed will be? Well, I take my cue from the markets and I looked at the markets last week and I look at the markets today and I ask myself the simple question, what do the financial markets, the yield on a 10-year treasury, as well as the level of stock prices, tell us statistically as to what the Federal Reserve is going to do? And the answer to that question is, statistically, the markets are telling us that the Fed has one more rate cut. I don't know if it's this month, I doubt it, uh, or, or December, but I think there's one more rate cut and possibly another rate cut in the near future. And that, to me, is important. And the reason it's important is because if we're talking one more rate cut, let's call it December, maybe even as late as, as March, but I'll say December, that's consistent with the view that we'll have a soft landing. If we're going to have a hard landing, you'd have the markets telling you or discounting more rate cuts than just one cut from 1.87 to 1.62. So one theme of the year has really been a rotation within the equity space away from some of the typical growth and momentum stocks into uh, the havens, utilities, the REITs. Do you think that that trade has been overplayed at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. Obviously, you have to worry about valuation, um, Lisa. It's it's valuation of the of the sort of traditional safe havens. The safe havens, of course, are the consumer staples and utilities, which have had a big move to the upside. I don't think it's over. I think you should have some of that so-called defense in your portfolio. 
You should also, and I don't think this is overplayed, make sure you have value stocks in your portfolio. Value stocks play a, pay a higher dividend than, than growth stocks, so it, that, that's helpful if indeed we do go to a hard landing in a recession. And, and let's not forget, they're out there, there's some managers, and, and there, there are many of them that have dividend strategies and strategies which offer dividend yields in the equity component of a portfolio of 2% to 3% and a rising dividend yield. That's really a good idea in this current market environment. What I'm simply saying is is every investor, given the close call that I'm talking about, should build a little bit of defense into their portfolios. That's a really sensible thing to do. So, Hugh, we have, uh, we can't forget about trade. That continues to be a big driver of the market. And we have the Chinese delegation arriving in Washington, D.C. this week for negotiations. What is your view on how trade is going to, has impacted and will impact the market going forward? It's a it's a big issue, and it's a big issue affecting the uh, manufacturing sector economy. Now, quite frankly, the trade numbers, the export numbers, have suggested that indeed trade is not affecting the manufacturing sector as yet. But it's an important issue. I've said all along, and I've said for a long number, that the Chinese are really in the driver's seat because they know how important it is for, for, for Trump to do a deal, and to do a deal that's going to revive, shall we say, agricultural exports because he needs the farm vote. He's going to that he'll get put on the hold of, of of the automobile tariffs that are coming out of China because he needs that Midwest vote, and they know that, and that's why they're limiting what they're talking about when they come to Washington this week. There's not much room here, but boy, they know they're in the driver's seat, and they know Trump needs a deal, and they're very aware of that, and they're going to drive a extremely hard bargain. It's going to, I think, we'll reach a deal, and it'll look like a reasonably good deal. But I don't think it's going to be all that the Trump administration and Lighthizer, who's a really good negotiator, really want. Hugh Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today. Hugh Johnson, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Hugh Johnson Advisors, uh, coming to us from Albany, New York. Well, it has been a very busy morning for President Donald Trump and his legal team as uh, they continue to fight to keep his tax returns uh, private. Lots of rulings from various courts this morning to get the latest uh, and to help us clear all this up is Bob Van Voorst, legal reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone uh, from New York. Bob, thanks so much for joining us again. We've had a couple of rulings this morning. Just give us a summary of what happened. Well, early this morning, a federal judge here in Manhattan ruled that uh, President Trump can't stop his accountants from turning over eight years of taxes and other financial documents to Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. Vance's office is investigating whether the Trump Organization falsified business records uh, tied to the hush money payments that were allegedly made to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. As I'm sure you remember, those are two women who claimed they had affairs with Trump before he became president. Um, last year, Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, pleaded guilty to, among other things, uh, facil- facilitating these payments uh, and pled guilty to a campaign finance uh, uh, violation. So uh, within minutes this morning, Trump's side appealed the ruling, um, and uh, an appeals court has granted a temporary stay uh, that puts off what would have been a 1 o'clock p.m. 
deadline for his uh, accountants to turn over his taxes and all of these other uh, records to uh, to Vance. Okay, so he won this uh, this sort of emergency stay. What's sort of the main event that everyone's waiting for to determine uh, whether he will have to turn over the documents or not at this point? Well, here's what's going to happen. Trump lost the ruling this morning. Uh, the appeals court uh, just granted the stay to delay things very for a very short time while it gives expedited consideration. So uh, the focus of attention shifts to the appeals court to decide whether the judge who made the ruling this morning, uh, his name is Victor Marrero, whether Marrero's ruling was correct or not. Marrero said this case shouldn't have been in federal court at all. This is something that the state courts should have tried to figure out. And he also said that uh, the president's broad claims that he can't be investigated at all, that his associates can't be investigated, and that his businesses can't be investigated, he called it, quote, repugnant to the nation's governmental structure continent uh, constitutional values um, so we're going to be waiting to, to hear from the appeals court uh, on an expedited basis we'll probably know by the end of today exactly when they're going to hear this case okay so let's assume they hear the case give us a sense of kind of what we can expect next and over what time frame um, well we can expect uh, very shortly to find out exactly what the time frame is going to be. But then the court will uh, uh, set up a schedule for, the, for both sides to submit briefs, to come in and argue. Trump's side claims that, uh, that it's a constitutional violation, that, it's, that it violates separation of powers and federal supremacy over the state for a state official to be looking into his affairs and getting his documents. Uh, Vance's side says this is just a normal investigation. This is a normal uh, subpoena for somebody to turn over records. Uh, And that's the argument they're going to make. We can expect them to do this as quickly as possible um, because the president is involved and because of the, the constitutional weight of these issues. Which financial records are these, just to get a sense of the scope uh, that perhaps uh, Cyrus Vance will, will, will get access to should President Trump lose the ultimate appeal? Well, we know uh, they're asking for eight years of taxes. We know that they're also asking for uh, records that are um, connected to these payments. We don't know exactly what it is that uh, is sitting in the files of the Trump organization that they are going to have to turn over, but it does have to do with the, you know, whether the Trump organization uh, tried to hide the payments by characterizing them as something that they that they weren't. So, Bob, just is there a consensus within the legal community how this will play out? Will Trump have to disclose his uh, handover's statements? Well, I don't know that there's a consensus, but uh, the judge who ruled today. Uh, had a very strong ruling, had very strongly criticized um, the very, very broad immunity that uh, the president was arguing for. Um, So, you know, if the appeals court takes a similar view, uh, then the president will have to uh, try to appeal to the Supreme Court. uh, And if that fails, then uh, he's going to be turning over those documents. 
Bob Van Voris, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Bloomberg Legal Reporter discussing uh, what we're seeing that's coming out of the trial. Uh, Cyrus Vance Jr., the uh, district attorney in the United for the United States in the state of New York, going after President Trump's financial records, uh, winning around President Trump, winning an emergency stay. Let's shift our focus to the retail sector. A lot of questions swirling over exactly how tariffs uh, could potentially affect this sector harder than others heading into uh, the holiday season. We are so pleased to say we have with us Ken Notori, president of the Notori Company, also a Bloomberg Media alum, a reporter, uh, also broadcaster, uh, a while ago. A long time ago. A long time ago. He's I, joining I, us. I miss it here greatly. I always love coming back. It's well, here you are. You're back. So welcome back. Uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, um, Ken, can you just tell us a little bit about the company, first of all? Uh, sure. So we're a 42-year-old uh, family business, uh, women's fashion brand. We've mostly been known for high-end women's sleepwear and bras and underwear. So, you know, traditionally we've sold to the high-end department stores, uh, Bergdorf, Neiman Marcus, Saks, and Nordstrom. I'd say over the last decade, uh, we have really transformed the company. So those department stores are still very key to our strategy, but we know, you know, everybody knows, traffic, foot traffic to those stores is declining. So we've really pivoted our strategy. Uh, they continue to be important clients, but we've invested heavily in our .com, which we started early. Uh, we're in the 12th year of Notori.com. Uh, we've expanded our brands. So now instead of just being high-end, we have some moderate brands that have helped with, uh, with distribution uh, as well. And then we've also become, we've really tried to become more of a lifestyle brand. So instead of just those core categories, uh, we've developed clothing, uh, bedding, towels, legwear, uh, and here today, because we're announcing a new partnership as well uh, in the fine jewelry space. So talk to us about um, your brand you mentioned. How do you, you know, develop, enhance, promote your brand? How's that changed over the years with, you know, social media and all those influencers and things like that? Uh, it has changed a lot. So, you know, I, I left uh, Wall Street 12 years ago to join the company. And at that time, the business was really simple. We basically invested in making product and the product kind of speaks for itself. And we sold that product to that small number of high-end retailers and they sort of pushed and had that conversation with the end user, with the customer. Now, you know, it's not just about making product. If all you do is, if any, as any brand, if all you do is focus on product, that's not enough. You know, whether it's our social media, whether it's our website, whether it's creating a connection between the product and the people behind it. You know, I feel like we talk a lot about storytelling. Who are these people that are making the product? Where is it made? So really it's, you know, while product really is still the most important thing we do, it's it's not nearly, you know, all encompassing. There's so many different things we have to hit on to succeed today. So when I think about bras and underpants, I think that the story is changing, right? And I and I think that nothing really exemplifies that more than what we've seen with brands and kind of struggling to understand what the identity of Victoria's Secret ought to be. What is uh, the story for the modern woman when it comes to bra and under, bras and underpants? Right. So I think, you know, this story has definitely gotten a lot of focus over the last year. But really, this story has been ongoing. Of course it has, because it always got on time memoriam. Exactly. But really, you know, over the last 15 years, everybody in the space, we all knew, you know, Victoria's Secret just had incredible share. Like if you look at their market share compared to any other of the biggest retailers in any other sector, like it didn't make sense. Brands like us have really gone after them aggressively over the last 15 years. And I think, you know, other, uh, you know, startups. So 
old school brands have gone after Victoria's Secret, and now we've really seen a lot of uh, direct-to-consumer startups go after them as well. And clearly, you know, some of that market share had to go away. Some of that's natural. And then obviously there have been some other missteps um, as well on, on their part that's probably led to some success for other brands uh, as well. So I think you know, with all of these things, some of it's just sort of a a natural degradation of market share, but also, you know, that customer, especially the you know, the millennial customer trying to get through to her and what she, he or she wants in terms of her bras and underwear and sleepwear, uh, it's a very evasive message. You know, our customer, to be honest, is um, a, a little bit traditionally more on the older side or on the middle-aged to older side, and we continue to market to that customer. Uh, in terms of that millennial, we have definitely gone more aggressively after it, but whether it's us, whether it's any of the direct-to-consumer companies going after it, uh, it it's not—it's never an easy formula for, for anybody in the space. The fickle millennial <laughs> yes, when exactly. it comes to even underpants. Sure they're never, fickle. You've never heard that before here, are there? Probably. <laughs> never. Yeah. So just give us a sense, um, you know, we, we think about, we, we, we talk a lot on the show and on Bloomberg Media about the tariffs and what it means for the economy and so on and so forth. So for your business, how has it impacted your business? So uh, we're fortunate, you know, like I said, we're a family owned business and for the sleepwear, loungewear and ready to wear that we do ourselves, we have our own factory in the Philippines, um, company owned, that's where my mother's from. It's been a very key part of our business. So for us, it's only about 20 to 30% of what we do that's, uh, that's in China and elsewhere. So in that sense, it hasn't been so bad. But I think for the people listening, What's really important to note is that it is, um, you know, it still hurts that 20 to 30 percent where we're paying the tariffs or negotiating to split the tariffs with our Chinese partners. It hurts. It really does hurt. I mean, that's directly off your bottom line. But more so for brands in our space, it is so competitive out there. There is zero ability, at least from where I sit, to pass that tariff to pass that increase on to the department stores that we sell to. Like they, they really don't want to hear about it. So it's not like, you know, there's a lot of talk about, oh, it's going to affect the customer at the end of the day. For us, it's really just impacting us because our department stores uh, really, you know, there's, there's no ability for us to pass those increased costs onto them. Is there any sort of read through message about the end client here in terms of how the consumer is doing right now and their confidence or is this just sort of uh the tough world right now of retail i think it's a tough world right now the question is i think we all in our head think this is going to go away relatively soon we hope but if not at some point the conversation is going to be have to going to have to be had and we're going to have to pass that i'm going to have to pass that on so um so we'll see I and mean, we're all hoping that something gets resolved soon but I don't know. Uh, you, you guys know more than I do. So, <laughs> so just, no, actually, yeah, on that front, we don't. Just real quickly, just give us a sense of Amazon. Yeah. How big have they disrupted your business? Uh, you know, we were early adopters with them. So I think when they started to come on and tried to get into fashion years ago, we had said, uh, a lot of brands said, we don't want to deal with it. I, I think we kind of knew that they were going to be big players. So we wanted to figure out how to how to partner with them. So we've sold direct to them for nine years. Uh, we have a third party strategy to get some other product uh, on their site as well. And, you know, clearly, like if you're any kind of brand that doesn't have a uh, uh, you're not incorporating Amazon in your future strategy, it's really difficult because, you know, a lot of the other channels there aren't necessarily growing. Ken Notori, thanks very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Ken is the president of the Notori Company, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Ken is a radio and TV alum of Bloomberg uh, from a few years back. We welcome him to, back to Bloomberg, uh, really giving us a sense of kind of the the business of uh, the women's lingerie business, the consumer uh, tariffs, uh, a lot of a- aspects of the business. Interesting to, to get these a uh, lot of these smaller family-owned companies in to discuss their businesses and kind of how the conditions are out in the marketplace. So we appreciate his comments. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.